the Rebbe left Russia when the Friedrich Rebbe left Russia. The story that goes around is that the Russian government agreed to let the Friedrich Rebbe leave and they take along his family, his immediate family, and they asked for a list of names. So he wrote himself, his wife, his mother, his three daughters, his son-in-law, his grandson, and his future son-in-law, my son-in-law to be. So when the KGB saw this paper, the KGB said, the son-in-law to be, eh. <laughs> You'll find another son-in-law outside of Russia. So the Fidik Rebbe is famous for having said, a son-in-law like this, I'm not going to find any place. Such a son-in-law, I'm not getting anywhere. Now we do not know whether those words were effective and the Friedrich, that the Rebbe left on the Friedrich Rebbe's visa or left himself. We don't know. It's entirely believable that the Rebbe left on his own accord. The Rebbe was a big Hevraman. The Rebbe understood Sovetsky Sayyuth, he understood Russians, he understood the Soviet Union. And he managed to finagle Gantz good. The Rebbe wanted to get something done, he managed. There was only one rule. You want to get something done in Russia? Just do it quietly. Never ever do anything to insult them or to offend them or to upset them. Shashtil, quietly can accomplish anything. What is certain is that the Rebbe and the Friedrich did not cross the border together. The Friedrich Rebbe left Russia from Leningrad, which is the very top of Russia. He just went to Finland. I don't know exactly how he crossed, but it was not a big deal. The Rebbe was home by his parents in Yekaterinoslav, in Dnepr Petrovsk which is very, very far away. It's very, very, very far away from Leningrad. For the Friedrich Rebbe to leave Russia, I had to travel a, very, a few miles. For the Rebbe to leave Russia, I had to travel several thousand miles. Um, the Rebbe left Russia. He joined the Friedrich Rebbe in Riga, and he stayed with the Friedrich Rebbe for a while. At least for some of that time, he acted as the Friedrich Rebbe's secretary, and then the Rebbe was forced to move to Berlin. The way we understand it is the Rebbe moved to Berlin because the Latvian government did not allow the Rebbe to stay. They gave the Friedrich Rebbe passage. The Friedrich Rebbe was allowed to stay in Latvia with his children. They were married. But the Rebbe was not. And the Rebbe moved to Berlin and he enrolled in university. I'm sure there's many reasons why the Rebbe enrolled in university, but one of them was that he got himself a student visa. He didn't want to go back to Russia, right? That would have been a bad idea. The Rebbe that Everson, by the way, carried a Russian passport until America. The Rebbe and the Everson were never neutralized as German citizens. They tried to become neutralized as French uh, nationals. But the first citizenship that the Rebbe and the Everson, the Rebbe and the Everson Chaim Mushka carried after Soviet Russia was the United States of America. Why did they have refugee status? You mean immigration status? A refugee status. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. That's the whole question. You know, when they were coming into America, there was a shaila amongst the people. Were they better going the refugee route or were they better going the quota route? And I, and I, see, at first they wanted to come to America as rabbis. And then they said, no, come as an engineer. The Rebbe. So I don't know exactly what the particulars are, but I believe that the Rebbe did not come as a refugee. He came under the quota because of his skill. The Friedrich Rebbe probably came as a refugee, but this is the actual coming to America. Anyway, the Rebbe moved to Berlin. 
Germany, where he lived 1928, 1929, 1930, 1931, 1932, until the Nazis came to power. Of course, when the Rebbe and the Rebbe got married, she joined him in Berlin. Berlin, by the way, was a city full of Jews, full of from Jews. So to be from, to keep the Rebbe standards of Kashrus and other things was not that difficult. When the Nazis came to power, they moved from Berlin to Paris. Paris was not nearly as from a city as Berlin. Everything was hard. Kashrus was hard. Alles given schwer. And the Rebbetzin would complain about how hard she worked to feed the Rebbe, because the Rebbe had such high standards. It was very, very, everything had to be done exactly to the Rebbe's specifications, and it was very complicated. But this is the bottom line. The Rebbe and the Rebbetzin lived away from the so-called hub, the center of the Babich, for about 13 years. For many of those years, the Rebbe was learning in school, university. And he was learning in a polytechnic, a, a school that specialized in engineering. Towards the end, that was finished. And the way I understand it is that when the Rebbe stopped going to school, that's when he applied for French citizenship. Because I think it was the only way for him to stay in the country. And he also got a job. I don't know what kind of job the Rebbe had, but the Rebbe got some kind of a job. Which meant that instead of the Friedrich Rebbe supporting him, they were supporting themselves. You're talking now 1938. So they finally rented an apartment with a bedroom. For the first 10 years of their marriage, they lived in a studio. Because as long as the Friedrich was paying the bills, they were very, very oizgerechet with pennies. The Rebbe's money was stuck in money. So they lived very simple. When the Rebbe got a job, they rented an apartment with a bedroom. You imagine that, an apartment with a bedroom. It's very timid. And they stayed there until June of 1940, when the Germans, when the Nazis attacked France. The Rebbe and the Rebbets left Paris, along with millions of other immigrants, refugees, and ran south, to the south of France. The roads were cluttered with people. The Nazis, Yemach Shemam, used to haze. Their planes would lie, fly low and they would machine gun people on the roads, just randomly killing people, civilians. They, I mean, you don't, Nazis don't need reasons for killing people, but the real reason they did it was because they wanted to keep the roads full of people. Because if the roads were full of people, that meant that the French reinforcements, the French tanks, could not come up to take up positions to defend against the Nazi attack. The Nazis took France in six weeks. The entire country, six weeks. Blitzkrieg, not normal. Um, and the Rebbe and the Rebbetson left France. And I understand that they were able to get tickets on a train. They had a connection. The Khal was impossible to get tickets on a train. They got a connection and they moved to the south of France. And they arrived out of Schwurz. 1940. They would stay in the south of France for literally a year and a, oh, two weeks. Because they left around the 16th or 17th of Sivan on a boat to come, on a ship to come to America. In other words, I wonder if you would do the calculations, it's exactly a solar year. It's not a lunar year, it's a solar year. It's a year plus about 10 or 11 days. And the Rebbe and the Rebbe lived in exile in the south of France. Now, the Rebbe told the story, our Rebbe Tzachayi told the story, that when they got off the train, it was out of Schuss, and it was late, and they had bags. They somehow had some kind of a reservation in a hotel, even though the hotels were packed. The Rebbe, there was some kind of a reservation in the hotel. So in other words, they had an address. They knew where they were going. 
and they lived in these hotels for about a year. They, they, they moved from place to place, but they lived in hotels. And um, the Rebetzin said the walk from the train station to the hotel was many hours, six or seven hours. She said she couldn't walk. So they hired a wagon, and she climbed onto the wagon with the belongings, and she rode. She rode into Shulis. They never walked. She came to the hotel. It was already Yomtif. So however she did it, she got into the hotel, she got into the room, and in the middle of the night, the Rebbe showed up. Now, I don't know about all the places. I don't know. There's Vichy and there's Nice. I think initially they came to Vichy. They spent most of the year in Vichy. And at a certain point, they were given instructions from New York to move to Nice. Because it became clear that whoever it was was in charge of immigration, the American representative in Vichy, was an anti-Semite and he was pushing not going to give in the papers that the, that the, the State Department had advocated that he do. So they were told to move, I think, to Nice. And within a very, very short time, the papers were released, the visa was released to allow them to come to the United States. So the Rebbe and the Rebetzin lived, as the expression is in Yiddish, of Peklach, on their bags for about a year in the south of France. Um, during that time, their accommodations were very limited. They didn't have furniture. The Rebbe Zechayim Mushka used to say that they had these trunks. They took along these big, massive trunks. You girls know what trunks are? They still have them? <laughs> no one buys like that luggage. Trunks are so heavy that the trunk alone weighs 25 pounds. Forget about what you put inside. They were wooden. Today we have very light valises. Today you can get luggage if it's, if it's, if it's for the right price. A piece of luggage can cost two or $300. That's very, very light and incredibly durable. They have good wheels, and they have good material, they don't tear and the wheels don't break. I mean, all the things that happen to all of us poor people who buy cheap luggage doesn't happen to rich people who buy expensive luggage. And one of the additional advantages of expensive luggage is that it's also very light. But they use these massive heavy trunks they carried their belongings. The Rebbe was carrying a lot of svarim. The Rebbe was carrying many, many ksavim. And he brought them all to New York. The Rebbe didn't lose anything. The Rebbe kept everything with him and he brought them all to New York with him. And from those ksavim, many things were printed, including the Rebbe's journal. The Rebbe's diary was in those trunks. So the Rebbe, since said, we moved into a room. There was, no, there was no furniture. So she opened up the trunks and she would lay out the clothing very neatly so it should feel like a house. It should feel like they had furniture because there was just, there was nothing. Walls, maybe they had mattresses. I don't know what else they had, but this is how they lived. And again, I don't know all the particulars and I don't know the stories in order, but there are so many stories that are told, many of them very reliable, about the year that the Rebbe and the Rebbe spent in the south of France. The first, of course, was the Rebbe needed to eat. And the Rebbe wouldn't eat anything. The standards of kashas were incredibly, incredibly high. Now, of course, you understand yourself that if the Rebbe didn't eat, probably the Rebbe didn't eat either. But the Rebbe never said we, she would always say, my man. It was so bad that there was a period of time that they were pushing starving. The owner of the hotel saw that the Rebbe is not eating. So he would put aside sugar cubes above the quota, above the normal ration, and he would hint to the Rebbe that she should come and pick it up or he would leave it for her and the Rebbe Pashat ate through a period of time that all the Rebbe ate was sugar. Sugar has very easy energy it's obviously not so healthy but if you, if you need to get energy and you have nothing else to eat, sugar is a very quick energy source and there were periods that the Rebbe ate sugar cubes 
And the rabbis not to make all kinds of arrangements for the Rebbe to get all kinds of things to eat. Of course, the story of stories was Pesach. They came before Shavuot, so Pesach was almost a year later, so they already had friends and acquaintances. And the Rebbe went out of his way to get every little detail. One of the stories was that the Rebbe heard that there's somebody in, in Vichy, I think it was Vichy, who was going to bake matzahs. The Rebbe showed up in their home and knocked on the door and asked if the Balabas was home. And he said the Balabas was not home. He says, I heard that you were planning to bake matzahs. If you're planning to bake matzahs, please include me. And he left. I don't even think he told them a name. There was a Jew named Bezbaratka who, who survived the war and was interviewed by Jem, who had a business. And because of his business, he was allowed free travel between France and Switzerland, which the Nazis never occupied. Switzerland was the only neutral country in the Second World War because the Nazis needed a bank to put all their stolen gold, and the Jews in Switzerland survived. Switzerland had Lubavitcher Chassidim. Amongst Lubavitcher Chassidim in Switzerland, you had the mishpacha that was called Schmerling. Schmerling's chocolate is Lubavitch, Schmerling. And the Rebbe asked his Bez Baratka, the Rebbe says, Bez Baratka, you're going to be in Switzerland, go find this guy Schmerling and tell that the Rebbe is here, the son of the Fiyidike Rebbe, and that even though there are matzahs being baked here in the south of France, my husband is not going to eat them if you can send him matzah shmurah. So this Bez Baratka came to the house of this Mr. Shmurli, and he, he said the message from the Rebbe, and Mr. Shmurli said, I can give you six matzahs. However, there are two other Lubavitch Siddim here in Switzerland. I'm assuming it's with Basel, or I was the capital of Switzerland. Anybody? Huh? Zurich, Zurich. And you can go to them, and they each gave the Rebbe, and the Rebbe sent six matzahs. So before Pesach, the Rebbe shows up at the house of this person who before he asked them about baking matzahs and he gave them matzahs. You understand? He came to the house to ask them. He heard they were baking matzahs and then he came to them and says, so they said, we have matzah already. He said, no, take a few. The Rebbe gave him a few of his matzahs. The Rebbe was going crazy for every little detail. The Rebbe needed wine. So he got up a guy who bought grapes and raisins. And they had to buy a new pot, and they had to cash it, and they had to table it. And someone privately pushed made for the Rebbe wine that the Rebbe gave instructions about how it should be made. One of the cute stories is that the Rebbe got a hold of a got a hold of more, I don't know how, but he wanted an onion for karpas. He had potatoes, but he wanted an onion for karpas. Why? Because it says him in Hagi Chabad that you eat. An onion, not a potato. Now, I'm not sure what's the big deal about an onion over a potato. But the Rebbe was my nefesh for an onion. So he got on a trolley to travel some distance to purchase an onion to have for the Seder. And the Rebbe Chayamushka told Mendel Notik, I heard the story from him, that my husband got on the trolley to go get an onion for Karpas. I had no idea if I would ever see him again. In other words, the Rebbe was pushing risking his life, not for matzahs, for an onion, for a minute Chabad to have an onion for the Seder. These are some of the stories about the Rebbe's food. Other stories about the Rebbe's Meshagasim and Frumkeit, this story is tr totally crazy, is the mice with the Esrik. Sukkot, the Rebbe needed a lulav and an Esrik and a das with Haravis. In the south of France, I think it's probably not that hard to get a lulav, you can certainly get it from Spain. And a das and Haravis. And they were a Sagan. They were a Sagan. 
But the Svegim were Israeli Svegim, and they never wanted to use a Yanavah Svegim. They said from Italy, like is our custom. So the Rebbe met Amistak the Sharov, his name was Rubenstein, I think he was the Rebbe in Paris. And the Rebbe asked him, are you allowed to be Mason Nefesh for a hidden mitzvah? Are you allowed to risk your life to be Mahadar in a mitzvah? He said, no. Anyway, the Rebbe disappeared from Vichy, I'm assuming it was Vichy. No, no, it's just, no, what was the other place? From Vichy, no, from Vichy, not from this Vichy. For a while, he came back, they said the Rebbe's face was scratched with a Yadavid Essek. So people said, wait a minute, the Rav said, you're not an amazing nefesh, this is an cloud. when you have a difficult child, you ask him, it's not good, you do forget. So we asked him, it's not the Shadov, and of course he told me that Allah that I'm not allowed to do it. So the Rebbe was for a Yadavid Essek. These are some of the stories about the Rebbe, they're even like personal stuff. But there are so many stories, so many stories, about people that Rebbe physically helped during that year and a half. I'm reading a book, now, which is called Chad Bedora. It's a book, it's, it's a biography of the Rebbe written by a man named Ruderman. It's not, it's Kishmak. I feel like not every detail is exact. He wasn't so particular in certain stories. But on the other hand, there are stories in that book that I've never heard before, including a number of remarkable stories that happened during this year. Um, one of the stories was that there were thousands of immigrants and then no place to go. They ran away from the Nazi place to go. So, and I think there probably were curfews. It couldn't be at night in the street. So you needed to get into a hotel. Hotel rooms were unavailable. There was no such thing as a hotel room. But people used to rent space on the floor of the lobby to lay their heads, push it. But the hotels would not let you lay down on the floor of the lobby unless you could show that you had what to pay. The only thing that was credible during a war was foreign currency. I mean, the French mark was useless. They were occupied by the Nazis. The German, the French mark and the German mark, it's also the German mark, right? The French mark, French mark, right? The French, what's the French currency called? Uh, Euros. Before that, the French, francs, and the German marks. German marks were probably more valuable, but they were not very valuable. You had to show that you had an American $100 bill. The Rebbe had a few, I don't know how, but he had money. And the Rebbe walked around in the streets, and he found Yidin, and he said, here's $100, go to the hotel, register, put on your belongings, and give me back the $100. And the Rebbe pushed walked the streets, finding Yidin, this is what he did, <laughs> helping Yidin finding a place where they did, and he pushed to save lives. During that time, he had to travel for all kinds of reasons. One of the times he traveled, he traveled to go to an office, an American consulate in a different city about visas. And he got out of the train station and he stood in the train station. And Yidin were coming. And there's a lady tells a story that we were little kids. They got out of the train and this is the city. And an angel came to greet them, a malach. He looked like a malach and he acted like a malach. And he, he said they had no idea who he was. He was pushed waiting in the train station. They got out of the train, he walked up to this mishpacha, and he gave them the $100 bill and said, go register in the hotel and give back your money. And the lady, who was a kid at the time, remembers her parents saying, who is this malach? They didn't know who the Rebbe was. The Rebbe looked, he physically looked like a malach, he was taka a malach. But the Rebbe did this a lot. He pushed it, 
physically helped Yidin during the war that ever physically did what he could to make the plight of Yidin easy. And then of course there's the story of stories. I find this story absolutely remarkable. There's a Hungarian Jew in Williamsburg. He's probably still alive. He obviously was alive when he told the story, but it was way after Gimel Thomas, who, who was in an orphanage during the war. The orphans, some were 2, 3, 4, and some were 11, 12, 13. The younger the orphans were, the less difficult it was because they didn't have a memory of their parents. This was all they remembered. But the older kids, the 6-year-olds, the 7-year-olds, the 10-year-olds, were all waiting for their parents to come. A lot of the parents were killed. A lot of the parents disappeared. And they were very distraught. Their lives were turned upside down. So they wouldn't eat. So during the few weeks that the Rebbe was in, in Nice. What's the other place? Right. The few there was in Nice. Right before he left France, every day, the Rebbe would come to this orphanage with long breads, French brigades, French bread, and yogurt and cream. And he would feed the children, give the children to eat. So a lot of the kids, they, they were hungry. They would eat, gobble up the food. But then there were kids who refused to eat. He says, this man with this monsieur, the Rebbe, would get down on the floor. On the floor, he'd lay on the floor with them. And he wouldn't leave till they all ate. And the kids who were eating were jealous of the kids who were not eating because they loved his attention. You understand? The children who didn't eat got more attention. They didn't know his name. They called him Mr. in French. They had no idea who he was. Mr. He came every day for a few weeks and he fed them. Anyway, years later, one of these kids from this orphanage grew up, survived the war, came to America, built a mishpacha, and he decided to visit the Rebbe for whatever reason. He walks into the Rebbe's room, and I think the Rebbe said, Oh, this is Moishala. I forgot what his name was. Oh, Moishala, or whatever name he was called as a kid. And he like, takes a double take, like, How do you know me? And then in Chapzach, the Rebbe was Mr who used to come every day and feed the little kindalach. You understand? This never push it, the whole mention. And he probably saved lives, because the way the man tells the story, the kids were starving because they wouldn't eat. And they made them eat. The Pasha made them eat. And then he of course the story that Zalman Shechter tells. I think this also was in Nice during that last period in 41. That uh, they they were a group of boys, Yeshiva Bachrim, who would get together to learn. But they were afraid to gather by day because, I mean, you never knew what was going to happen tomorrow. You know, France was occupied by the Germans. But the south of France had a, had a puppet government of a man named Petan. This guy Petan gave the Nazis 75,000 Jews that were sent to Auschwitz and gassed. In other words, it's, uh, I don't know if you saw the article that he wrote. Did you see his piece? The professor, Dershowitz. Did you see what Dershowitz wrote? Dershowitz, good piece. He wrote a long piece about anti-Semitism in the last couple of weeks after the whole thing in Israel. You didn't see it. If you're interested, send me a WhatsApp. I'll send you a copy of it. You have to just tell me what you want. It's gishmak to see a liberal Jew who's become a shtickle mensch in his long life. But he says the Germans didn't kill the Jews of Europe. The Europeans killed the Jews of Europe. And he pushes lists the countries who collaborated with the Germans. And if not for the French help, 75,000 French Jews, the Germans didn't collapse those Jews, the French did. There were a few countries, you know, Sweden didn't give up its Jews. 
but most countries, they partially collaborate with the Germans. So the, you were afraid to walk in the streets. Either the French would take you into the army or the Nazis would get you. So they would gather at night and they would learn. I think it was like Boimir. Or no, Tu Bishvat. Let me just Bishvat. So you know what? I'm probably mixing up the dates and the places. I'm sorry. Maybe it was Nice first and Vichy second. I keep saying Vichy first and Nice second. Vichy first and Nice. You're sure about that? So then, but, but I, I remember saying that it was in Nice. So maybe it was in Vichy. Anyway, they got together and a guy rolled in. It's the middle of the night. The man walks in. And they were learning, but that night they interrupted the learning. They were saying lechaim, they were singing enigma. And uh, he didn't tell them his name. And he asked if he could sit. And then he began to speak. And he said, The mission says a kedushin. I mean, you guys all know Baki Bishas, right? Since the boys don't know anything, so the girls have to know everything. Kabbalah, you for sure know, right? A little Gemara also, yeah. Uh, the Mitzvah of the Kedushin, no, in Kisuvis, Besula on the Sass, the Yemar V. A Besula, a girl who was never married, gets married on Wednesday. An Almona gets married, Yemar Hamishi. A, a widow gets married on Thursday. And then it says in Svarim that a Machsa Grushosei, if a person divorces his wife and remarries her, which is considered a big mitzvah, you get married on a Friday. So the Rebbe explained that Apikabola Pechsidis, that the Yidn and the they were married. So in the Wednesday, which is the fourth millennia, from the year 3001 to the year 4000, we were in the Madriga of the Basula, the Avishta married us for the first time. And Mashiach could have come in the fourth millennia, and he didn't. So then Mashiach could have come in the fifth millennia, which is the year 4001 to the year 5000, when we were in Almona, a widow, of course. In the Eicha, it says, Hoysakya Almona. We're not Mamish and Almona, the Avishta didn't die. But the Isha Shaholam Bayad al Medina Sayyam, her husband went away to a far place, it's Kalman. He says, and then the year 5000 came and Mashiach still didn't come, so now it's Friday. So we're in Grusha, we're divorced, and the, her husband, the Ibish, is going to remarry us. And the Rebbe spoke about this Indian that we're holding in a time that Mashiach's coming is going to be like an Almot, like a Grusha, like a husband who's taking back his wife in divorce. And Zalman Shechta tells the story, and he says, Whenever he, whenever the Rebbe wanted to cry, and he wanted to hide his crying, he would cough. So the Rebbe started to cough. In other words, he understood later that the Rebbe's coughing was veiling the fact that it was very emotional to him that he was talking. And we fabricated these chavre, they found out only later who he was. And there are many, many stories of people who met the Rebbe during, but in France, the Rebbe had a, quite a following. But there were many people who met the Rebbe during this year and had very special experiences with him of all different types. Now as far as the Rebbe's coming to New York, so 30 years ago this year, Tafshin enough, 1991, a book was printed, a Kuntus was printed, which is called Kuntus Chof Ches Sivin Tafshin Nun Aleph. It was the 50th anniversary, today is the 80th anniversary, then it was the 50th anniversary, Shanam of the Rebbe's arrival in New York, and the Rebbe actually commemorated that day. I mean, I know and you know that the Rebbe McLeod Never made anything out of himself. Everything was the free of the But on this occasion, the Rebbe Taka made an official yomtiv, official celebration of the 50th year of his anniversary of his arrival in New York. And the Rebbe gave out a kuntris. It was a purple, like a very dark red pamphlet called Kuntris Chof Ches Sivan Tavshinalif Yevil Shonim, which the Rebbe handed out to each person. It came in a clear plastic bag, like a, a manila envelope. 
but it was clear plastic. I think it had two dollars inside, and the Rebbe gave it to every person. In that Kodesh Chav Chasivin, there is details that were researched of that year, and what I've the, the technical dates are that I was trying to share in that Kodesh. I haven't seen the Kuntus in many years. I should probably have prepared it and looked inside. But there he has the names and the places and the, all the details about they never traveled to one place and they traveled to another place and so on and so on. On this end, on the American side, every effort was made to save the Rebbe's life. The Rebbe also had, the Fiedek Rebbe had another son-in-law who was also living in France. His name is Menachem Mendel Akoyen, Mendel Horenstein. And his wife's name was Shendel, Harabonis Atzatonis Shendel. That's the Friedrich Rebbe's youngest daughter. The Rebbe's Chaimushka's younger sister. And by the way, they had an adopted little boy. They didn't have children either. They adopted a little boy. That little boy obviously was killed together with them in Treblinka. They went back into Poland. They were living in France. And when the Nazis attacked Poland, they went into Poland. Now why would anybody do that? Because his mother was still alive. His mother was the Rebbe Tzachayimushka. She was a daughter of the Rebbe Marash. The Rebbe Marash had a daughter who was killed in Treblinka. You understand? The Rabbeim lost close relatives to the Nazis in Marashman. And they got stuck in Poland. They were not able to leave. The Friedrich Rebbe tried very, very hard to get them out of Poland. It was unsuccessful. But he never stopped. When the Friedrich Rebbe passed away, he was never officially told that they were killed. People came and said testimony and they kept it a secret from the Fiedek Rebbe. After the Fiedek Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe gave out a kuntris, Chof Hei Chesh from Tav Shin Yud Aleph, in which he tells the story of how this man came and reported what happened to this Rebbe Tzinchaya Mushka, and then Rebbe Tzinchayendl, and then the Rebbe's Edim, the Rebbe, our Rebbe's brother-in-law, Menachem Endel Yes? How many kids did the Rebbe Rebbe had six children. He had four boys and two girls. The oldest was a girl and the youngest was a girl. The oldest name was Devena Leah, she was married to somebody named Ginsburg. The youngest name was Chaya Mushka, and she was married to somebody named Hollenstein. Her son married the, the Friedrich Rebbe's daughter, meaning she was the Friedrich Rebbe's aunt, but she was not much older than the Friedrich Rebbe. She, she was a Basquiat. They were first cousins, once removed. Mendel Hollenstein was the Friedrich Rebbe's first cousin. So he married the Friedrich Rebbe's daughter, first cousins once removed. And um, they lived in France, lived in Paris. They were friends with the Rebbe, they were very close. The Rebbe and Mendel Hollenstein and the Rebbe and Chengel were incredibly close. They were very, very, very close. When the Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe had a ring from his sister, from her sister. The Rebbe made sure that that ring should go into the cave. The ring that she got from her sister, Chengel, was buried with her. I think it was more because Shemel doesn't have a grave. She was killed by the Nazis. She was burnt in the crematoria, so the Rebbe put the ring in. But they were incredibly, incredibly close. And the Friedrich Rebbe was desperately trying to save his children. He was desperately trying to save his Hasidim. And he put, he put all, he put Rebbe Karakas he had. He asked people to help him. And of course, the Rebbe had connections in the State Department with different, there was a guy named Morgenthau, who was in the government, who was very helpful. All kinds of strings have to be pulled. And you already mentioned before, this Shaila. What was the better way to save the Rebbe? To save him as a refugee is to save him as under the quota. And it created a confusion. Because in the beginning, they were trying to get him as a refugee. So the Rebbe was a rabbi. All of a sudden, he's not a rabbi, he's an engineer. So the government, the people start saying, excuse me, this is 
someone's lying here. Yesterday a rabbi, today an engineer, and the idea that it could be both a rabbi and an engineer didn't seem plausible. But I think the end was that they changed it from the Rebbe coming as a refugee for the Rebbe coming in under the quota of 1941 as an engineer because America did take foreign citizens into their land if they could serve America's purposes and an engineer in the middle of a war was a pretty good uh, refugee, good person to bring into this country. Is that why the Rebbe worked for the Brooklyn Navy Yard? worked for the Brooklyn Navy Yard because he worked for the Brooklyn Navy Yard. There's a Shmua that the Friedrich Rebbe told the Rebbe. We have two missions to defeat the Nazis and to make America to Mokumtaydeh. Now if that's true, the Friedrich Rebbe told the Rebbe directly, it's our job to defeat the Nazis, so the Rebbe worked to defeat the Nazis. This is a shmua that I heard recently, relatively, I heard it in the last five years probably, 10 years maximum. I didn't hear it as a kid growing up, and of course, the further away you are from when the events happened, the harder it is to believe them. But this is a story that I heard. In any case, so on the American side, they were using all the connections in the State Department to give the Rebbe visas. And there were a lot of roadblocks. The cloudy, the, I mean, the whole of the world turned their backs on the Jews. Nobody wanted to help the Jews. I mean, six million Jews would not have been killed if America just let them in. It's so simple, it's not complicated. You could have saved so many lives. America could have saved Jews. England could have saved Jews. They could have let Jews in that to throw. They didn't even have to come into England. Palestine was a was a was a uh, was a, an imperial state of the British. They wouldn't let Jews into Israel. Send them back to Europe, and that's a, an unforgivable sin. It really is an unforgivable sin. The reason the Nazis killed six million Jews is because nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted them. Um, so the State Department was ooing and eyeing, you know, taking their time, dragging their feet, but they put pressure. And again, the way I understand the story was they finally got all the papers sealed, signed, and delivered, and messages were sent to Europe to allow the Rebbe and the Rebbe to have these visas to come to the United States, and the people in the government offices there held them. And again, part of the reason it seems is because there was anti-Semites. A telegram was sent from America to France, telling the Rebbe to move to a different city or to go to a different city and apply there, and that worked. That worked. Eventually, the Rebbe and the Rebbe were able to get hold of their papers, visas, to come to the United States of America. But now you had to leave Europe. To leave Europe, you had to cross over from France into Spain. Spain was a neutral country during the Second World War because Spain was also uh, fascist, right? Uh, Marco, who ruled into my lifetime, I remember Marco, Franco, Franco, was a right-winger, he was a, a nationalist, he wasn't a communist. So he was a friend of the Germans and the Italians. So f Spain remained a safe, neutral country. And there were Jews, by the way, who saved their lives moving into Spain. But of course, same thing, there was a lot of red tape. Nobody wanted the Jews. Um, but the Rebbe and the Rebbe eventually got their visas and they moved into Spain. And after being their mamish for a few days, they got on a ship and they sailed to New York. One of the stories which is painful, but true, is that there was a mishpacha living in the south of France who had tickets to come to the United States of America, but Spain would not let them in. There was some kind of bureaucratic hold. They were killed by the Nazis. They never made it. The mishpacha name I never remember, but the first two digits are G-R, something or other, Granaz, forgot. 
they were the Shvedan Shvigan of a Jew by the name of Mordechai Bistritsky. The name Bistritsky you've heard. Bistritsky is a very, very prominent Lubavitcher name. Mordechai Bistritsky was a Bayana Chassid who married a Lubavitcher girl. And her parents were these people. They had tickets and no visas. The Rebbe and the Rebbe had visas and no tickets. They gave the Rebbe and the Rebbe their tickets. They saved the Rebbe and the Rebbe's life. Kipshutei. Um, and they were killed. They were killed. And the Rebbe and the Rebbe took their tickets, went to Spain, got on the ship, came to New York. Now, there's a story, which I think, I think is true, that Mamash at the last minute, there was some kind of a cable from the Fri Rebbe, a cable or a telegram not to travel. They were supposed to get on a certain ship. Fri said not to travel, so they didn't travel on that ship. They traveled on the next ship. People thought that they were crazy. The ship that they would have been on was torpedoed. Everybody was killed. The Friedrich Rebbe said not to travel, so they didn't travel. They got on the next ship, and they came to New York. That's pretty much the story. The Rebbe, the Rebetzin arrived on a Monday. And uh, after spending 10 or 11 days on a ship, they got on the ship like the 16th or the 17th of Sivan. They arrived in New York the 28th day of Sivan, which was a Monday. Now, it's interesting to point out this year is 80 years, so everyone's making such a big deal out of the fact that it's 80 years. So, um, one of the things which is it's really fascinating, that Rebbe lived in this exiled state for about a year and two weeks, something like that, a little more than a year. He didn't, I don't know if he had access to Svarim. The Rebbe spent most of his days in ice learning Taita. I mean, what else was there to do? And the Rebbe filled his journal. The Rebbe is Rishimis. The Rebbe wrote to Rishimis in his journal during the time that he was in Vichy and also in Marseille and also in uh, in Spain. Oh, Madrid. Not Madrid. What's the city? Lisbon. Lisbon. There are Rishimis and the Rebbe's journal written. Lisbon is a port. Okay, you're right. It's Portugal. It's a port city. I stand corrected. It wasn't Spain. It was Portugal. The Rebbe left to Portugal. Okay, it's the peninsula, it's Iberia, it's Altex. It's the piece that sticks out of Europe into the Mediterranean. But you're right, it was Portugal. The Rebbe left from Lisbon. And there's Rishimis and the Rebbe's notebooks, which were given out 25 years ago. And this year they gave them again that people should learn them. That the Rebbe wrote in Lisbon. And the, you're basically sitting and waiting to get on the boat. The Rebbe wrote until he arrived in New York. The Rebbe came here on a Monday, and as he himself told the story, when he came here, he had a question. Should he first go to the mikveh or should he first go to 770? The reason to go to the mikveh is you're not going to go see the Rebbe or go to the mikveh. The reason to go to 770 was he's going to make the Rebbe wait. The Fidegab is going to want to see him. Fidegab has to wait till he goes to the mikveh. So the Rebbe didn't know how to act. The Rebbe didn't say what he did. He just pointed out that he had this uncertainty. If he should first go to the mikveh, then come to 770 or first go to 770. Lepoil, they came on a Monday. The Rebbe and the Rebetzin moved into what is now the Rebbe's room. The Rebbe and the Rebetzin came here. They put two beds in what is now the Rebbe's Yechidus room. And that's where they slept for about three weeks. Then, I, I guess, whatever politics played out, it became kind of clear that the Rebbe and the Rebetzin could not live in 770. So they went and they rented an apartment on President of New York. Where the Rebbe and the Rebbe would, of course, live for, I guess, 15 years until the house was purchased on President Street by Merkiz, 
which is where the Rebbe lives. Um, but when he first came, he moved into what is now his office, was his bedroom. That's where they slept for a couple of weeks. Uh, there's a lot of details to the story. How the Chassidim came to greet the Rebbe and asked the Rebbe to fabreng and the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe waited three days, 72 hours, to see his children. The Friedrich Rebbe held himself back from seeing his kids for three days. And when he saw them, he saw them one at a time. First the Rebbe said, Chayimushka went in, and then the Rebbe went in. And the Rebbe, our Rebbe, told the story by Afabrengin, and he explained that the reason the Friedrich Rebbe hesitated to see them was because the Friedrich Rebbe was very emotional, and he wasn't well, and he was concerned with his health. So he waited for him to calm down, and only afterwards did he allow himself to see his children. During those three days, obviously the Rebbe Davan Chachas Minchem and he learned Teira, but he didn't do anything until the Friedrich Rebbe saw him and told him what's going to be. He never waited. Now, girls, our class is over. There's other girls coming in here. I'm going to continue the story for, with them. If you want to get the next part, you can ask me for a, a recording. I'll send it to you. If you want to sneak into the classroom, I'd love to have you. Okay, I'll see you Thursday, Mr. Shem. Thank you. Yeah, be well. <laughs>